0: Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever experienced a cascading failure in your life (laughs) where one thing, just one little thing just goes snowballs and it all goes to heck? Let me tell you a a real simple little story. My wife was sleeping one morning, and I didn't want to wake her up. But I had to get up, so I go over to the medicine cabinet and ever so carefully open the medicine cabinet so I don't open it too loudly. And I very slowly, very carefully reached for the shaving cream. And I fumbled. Well, I went for the recovery, which knocked about four or five other things out of the shelf. The shelf fell down, the wall fell in, the house caught on fire, the city burnt down, we went to nuclear war, it all happened because I dropped the shaving cream. Of course, part of that story is true. It was just trying to be nice, after about three or four days of me doing something similar to that like one time I opened the bedroom door and it kind of sticks a little and so then I didn't want to close it so I decided I'd leave it just cracked right up against the frame so I'd be quiet and not close the door well the air conditioner kicked on blew the door shut bam so next time I went in there I just started getting dressed and she said you're making too why are you making so much noise in the morning I said trust me you don't want me to be quiet (laughs) I tried it doesn't work And that's just a little thing. Got nothing to do with morality or goodness. You never know how things are gonna impact other people. Imagine, for example, let's say your job, well, let me not tell you the job yet. Let's say you're on your way to work and some guy is on his way to work, he's running a little late, so he cuts you off. You give him the gesture. You give him all five because one isn't enough. Now the guy already knows he's running late, he's already uptight, and now you're yelling at him, and he's just, ugh! So he gets to work, and he drops his coffee, and he kicks his desk, and he breaks his toe. He's got a real simple job. All he does is inspect tires. That's all he does. But now he's thinking about you and how mean you were, and it wasn't his fault that he cut you off, the light was too quick, and and one of the tires goes by, and he doesn't quite get a good look at it. Oh, I'm sure it's fine. You buy that tire and it blows out on you on the freeway. Car creams out of coal, three cars wreck. You just never know how your behavior is going to affect other people. Or just change it around. The guy cuts you off, he feels all bad, and you just go, it's okay. Have a nice day. And he sees your smile. And now he's relaxed. He says, how nice. You know, I would have flipped him off, the guy's thinking. But what a nice person. And he goes into work, and he, he doesn't spill his coffee, and he doesn't stub his toe, and he catches a defect for an 18-wheeler, which would have been a blowout, which would have caused an accident on a windy day, and lives are saved because you smiled at somebody. You just never know. These last four chapters of 2 Samuel, we're going to finish up 2 Samuel, it's kind of like that. It's it's consequences. It's cause and effect. It's how our behavior affects other people. If you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about David and and Bathsheba, and David thought he'd have this little fling and get away with it. But the end result was her husband gets murdered by David to try to cover it up. There's civil war. His own son tries to kill him, his wives are stolen, chaos because of his little fling. Well, it seems like these next chapters of the Bible continue the story of how people's behavior can cause chaos, even inadvertently. So here's what happens in chapter 21. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And you think everything's done, the coup is over with, the second coup is over with, David is getting old, things are settling down, and then there's a famine in the land, and it's a three-year famine. Well, David was close to God, he knew some prophets, he inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, this famine is in consequence because of what King Saul did. King was the la- Saul was the last king, he died years ago. And so the first question I had about the story was, why now? Why is there a famine for something King Saul did 20, 30, 40 years ago? And so I gave it some thought, because the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says there was a famine in the land, and it was a consequence of sin. Before I tell you the answer, at least the one I came up with, let me tell you what Saul actually did. He had this agreement with a group of people called Gibeonites. He promised to be their protector and their benefactor. And he changed his mind one day and had a whole community of them murdered for no reason at all. They were strangers, they were outsiders. So he pledged to be their king, their patron, their benefactor, and he turns around and he murders them. That's what the country was being plagued with the famine for. So King David says, hey, there's a famine in the land. It's because the previous king did this to you people. What do you want us to do to make it right? We'd like to fix this. And the Gibeonites got together and said, well, Saul killed our descendants. So let us have seven of Saul's descendants killed. And that'll please us. We'll figure it's fair now. So you're the king of Israel, and you've just been asked to kill seven descendants of Saul to make it right. That sounds like a win-win situation, doesn't it? Let me read to you a little bit about what's going on here, and then we'll wrap it up into a nice little package. First of all, why does the famine happen years later? The Bible doesn't say. I know this. Sin has consequences, and sometimes they're put off. Okay? You might suffer for something in your own life that happened 20 years ago. We don't always get an instant response to our mess ups, but sometimes they're put off. Why did God put this one off? Don't know. But they just went through two coups. David lost his son. Another of his daughters was raped. Maybe God was being gracious and saying, you know, you guys have been through enough these last 40 years. I'm going to put this one off till the tail end, let you guys breathe for a few years. Maybe. I don't know. Sometimes sin gets you soon. Sometimes it gets you later, but it always gets you. It comes back to bite you sooner or later. Sin has consequences and must be dealt with. The murder of the Gibeonites was the sin. The famine are the consequences. Listen to what God told Moses to tell the children of Israel about murder and such anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die he must surely be put to death do not pollute the land where you are bloodshed pollutes the land An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So there's this concept of a community being defiled because of a murder. And when the blood is shed, the defilement happens. It's like nuclear waste. It's contaminated. Your community is now contaminated because an innocent person was murdered. So how do we make it right? By executing the murderer in accordance with the law. That's the only thing that makes it right. Kind of on a side note, do we have any murders in this country? All the time. Do the murderers get executed? Hardly ever. So, if the principle is valid in the United States as it was in ancient Israel, and I don't know, it seems to be, then it seems fair to say that we've got some polluted land that our community is defiled by the murder of people. Murder defiles a community. Even if you aren't involved in the murder, we're all part of a community. Our behavior can affect other people. Let's say it's uh, New Year's Eve, and you go out and you shoot your rifle up in the air. Boom, 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 happy New Year. Ha, ha, ha. And one of those bullets comes down and kills somebody. What did that person do to deserve that? nothing It was you who did stupid and your behavior affected somebody else not just stupid, but illegal So an innocent person can suffer from somebody's behavior Well, let's say you shoot the rifle up in the air and it doesn't come down and hit anybody. Ah, that's all good But your neighbor heard the rifle shots and called the police so the police are dispatched to investigate brought to the other side of town And they miss, because they've been dragged away, another crime that ends up hurting people. A drunk driver, a bank robbery, whatever. Because they've been taken away because you shot your rifle up in the air. Consequences, consequences, consequences. Unseen, unknown. But they happen. Sin spreads and seems to affect everybody. Even a murder can defile a community when the other people in the community had nothing to do with it. But what do we do to stop it? Do we execute murderers? Not in most places. Most people get off scot-free. Well, in the states that have the death penalty, and there's only a few, there's the appeal process, which usually gets handled in 20 or so years. I mean, it's, I don't know, whatever. Well, so they go to David and say, we want you to kill seven of Saul's descendants to make this right. And I'm thinking, that's not right. What did these guys do? And David says, okay. And he kills seven of the descendants. And so I'm still thinking this is all wrong. And then it says, God stopped the famine. So it seems like God respected what David did. And this is just blown with my mind. How can God accept the death of seven people who weren't involved? To, uh, I don't get that, Doesn't doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair. In fact, the Bible says that's not fair. Listen, Deuteronomy 24. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each one is to die for his own sin. So my head is spinning. I know I'm missing something here. But what is it? Well, I start going through my thought process. And I made a couple of assumptions. And you know the saying, don't assume anything. (laughs) (laughs) But I did. My first assumption was David had seven innocent men executed. Why did I assume that? There's nowhere in there that says he chose seven innocent men. Remember, we just had two coups. I'm sure there were tens of thousands of people who are worthy of dying at this point in Israel's history judgment has passed over. And he didn't just pick seven men at random. They had to be seven men descended from Saul. Sometimes we read through the scriptures too quickly and we miss some of the finer details. This story started out saying this. Why is this famine here? Because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. I'm sure Saul didn't go to Gibeah all alone with a sword and destroy the community. It looks like a significant portion of his family was involved. He probably had all his sons with him because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. So where do these seven men get executed from? Saul's bloodthirsty house. They were probably complicit. Don't know for sure. I do know that David personally selected the seven, and Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, was spared. So David handpicked who got executed and who didn't. David was a man of God who honored God, and the Torah specifically said, innocent people cannot die for the sins of their, their ancestors. So I'm just putting one and one together and saying, these guys weren't innocent. David found seven scoundrels who he's happy to execute and executed them. Reading into the story, you have to read in either way because the details aren't there. So you read in and assume God approved of the innocent murders of seven, or you read in and figure justice was done against seven scoundrels. You pick the story you like. I know which one I'm going with. So chances are these guys were seven scoundrels who needed to be executed anyway, and David used them to do what needed to be done to restore the land to justice. I do not know why there was a year or three or 20 or 30 between the sins of Saul and the plague. I don't know why it impacted everybody. I don't know why those seven sons were chosen. I just give you my opinions for better or for worse. But I tell you what I do know. Our behavior affects other people. That I do know. And I found this really cool illustration to get that point across. Let's take a look at the video clip. So, that's our new LED TV 120 Hz frame rate, Net TV, and Resolution Plus. We're all set to ship if we don't include built in Wi Fi. No. Put Wi-Fi in the TVs. The all-new Toshiba LED TV. We thought of everything. I've seen several commercials like that. My favorite one is when the guys turn into zombies. Have you guys seen that one? Oh, that is hilarious. You'll have to YouTube it because it's worth seeing. Our behavior affects other people. It could be an innocent little thing and can have significant consequences. The story of David and Bathsheba and the following story with his son Amnon and Absalom all drives that home. Chapter 21 that we just looked at, Saul's sin, which brought about the famine, which required David to kill seven people, all affected the community. Chapters 22 and 23, uh, you can go home and read those if you want to. They're basically a couple of David's final psalms. In that, those two chapters, it says these are the final words of David. Then 2 Samuel ends, and we go into 1 Kings, and David is still alive and talking. So people say, wait a minute, how are these the final words of David if Kings comes next? Well, there's a couple ways of looking at that. First of all, we don't know which part of the Bible is in chronological order. It wasn't all written like history. They put stories together and some of them go like this. So it's very conceivable that these chapters could move forward in history without a problem. But I think a better solution is these were his final two Psalms. He wrote half the Psalms in the Bible. These are the final words of David. these are his last two psalms. That's how I look at it. But they're interesting psalms. They're worth going home and reading. Then in the last chapter, we get another situation of cause and effect, another situation where our behavior affects other people. And another passage of Scripture that looks really confusing and makes us think weird thoughts about God in the Bible. So I'm going to read them to you, show you the problem, and present to you some possible solution. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, Joab was in charge of the army, he said to Joab and to the army commanders with him, Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are but Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it, but why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. This is confusing on so many levels. First of all, Joab's all upset that he wants a census of the fighting men. What's wrong with having a census of the fighting men? You're a king. You've got to know how many you have. If you don't, how are you going to brilliantly go to war? So I don't even understand what the problem was. Why are these guys bent out of shape? And every commentary I've ever read, nobody has a clue why there was a problem. They have opinions, but that's all they are. And the opinions are like, you're reaching for that, aren't you? Because we don't know. The Bible is silent. With one exception, in the law of Moses, it specifically says, if you do a census of the children of Israel, here are the sacrifices you must make first. Well, I really don't know what the problem was with the census. But I do know this. They didn't carry out a sacrifice. That might have been the only problem. Remember that guy when the Ark of the Covenant was tipping over and he put up his hands to stop it and he got struck dead on the spot for touching it? Everybody got mad at God when God had specifically said, don't carry the Ark that way, (laughs) and they did? Well, maybe that's the same thing with the census. Don't do a census this way. They did, people died. Maybe, I really don't know. I do know, though, that censuses were supposed to have sacrifices tied to them, and this didn't. But it really doesn't matter that we understand. They understood, and this is about them. They knew it was wrong. Joab tried to stop him. The commanders tried to stop him. David wouldn't listen. So they knew they were doing wrong. They did it anyway. Chaos resulted for the entire community. Here's another one of those problems. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them. Now listen. First Chronicles 21, same story. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Samuel says God incited David. Chronicles says Satan incited David. How in the world do we reconcile that? It's the same story. Listen, Satan rose up against Israel and cited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troop, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. May, my Lord, may Lord, my Lord the King, are they not all of the Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? It's the same story. But one says Satan did it to David. The other says God did it to David. Let's see, first of all, where they agree. They both agree that David did it. They both agree that Joab knew it was wrong and went along with it anyway. And they all agree that the commanders knew it was wrong and they went along with it anyway. Now, let's talk about God for a minute. Does anything happen on this planet without God's direct participation? Nothing. He is our sovereign Lord. God's involved in everything. So the odd man out in this story is really Satan. He's not involved in everything that goes on in this world. But he is involved here. So how can it be that the scripture says God incited and then the scripture says Satan incited? Let me bring you back to a few weeks ago when I gave you a lesson about Pharaoh king of Egypt. It was another one of those confusing passages of scripture. Because the scripture said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh resisted Moses and brought on the plagues. And people read that and say, that's not fair. God made him bad. Well, no, that's not what it says. You got to read more of the story. Because you go back a few chapters and it says Pharaoh hardened his heart again. So here's how the whole story seems to jive out. Pharaoh was a godless, evil king of Egypt. He rejected and resisted God. God sent him a personal prophet, and he rejected and resisted the prophet. God sent him signs and wonders. He rejected and resisted the signs and wonders. Then it comes about like God saying, you really want to play this game? You really want to be my enemy? I'm giving you chance after chance. Are you sure you want to be my enemy? Do you really want to be against me? And Pharaoh's like saying, yeah. God says, fine, I could use a guy like you. I needed a scoundrel at this time in history. You're it. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's how I see the story. It takes on a totally different look that way than, oh, it's God's fault. God did it. No, God didn't do it. God took a scoundrel who he gave every opportunity not to be a scoundrel. The guy refused. So then God used him to further his plan it's kind of like Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. Is there a higher honor any human being could have had on the planet? Ever? No. What does Judas do? He steals the offerings that the apostles have, and then he betrays Jesus and turns him over for execution. Who made Judas do that? Nobody. Nobody. Ah, but Steve, it says in the gospel, Satan put it into his heart. Yes, he did. But Judas didn't need to have that kind of heart. He wanted that kind of heart, and he didn't have to act on what was put in his heart. He was a bad guy. Now, didn't I tell you nothing happens without God being active? Jesus came for one reason and one reason only, to die for our sins. He needed a scoundrel. So he took a man and gave him every opportunity to be blessed and to love the Lord, and he refused. As if God was saying, fine, I needed a scoundrel. You're it. So now that I look at this story in light of Pharaoh, in light of Judas, I can see it. Okay, God needs to punish Israel. He needs a scoundrel. Remember what it said. This isn't all about David and his census. Verse 1 said, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Israel was in sin, such bad sin that God wanted to execute some of the people. But he wanted a process to follow in which to do it. Why? What were they doing wrong? story doesn't tell us. But I already told you, we'd been through at least two coups already, which both carry the death penalty, by the way, which I taught you about last week. And who knows what other sins they were uh, carrying on. So the way I see it, Satan's always willing to hurt somebody. So God just stepped back, let Satan do his thing, because God wanted it done. David was in a bad place. God says, I can use this. David sent out the census. God sent down the plague. Now, this is cool, because the story always turns in the Bible. Bad news is always followed by good news there's always blessings. It's as if God won't tell you anything about hell unless he tells you all about heaven. God talked to the prophets and talked to them, oh, the day's coming where this judgment will happen, and that judgment will happen, and this judgment will happen, and then the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and people won't learn war anymore, and all will be good and nice, and children will touch scorpions and not get stung. Judgment, 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 followed by blessing, blessing, blessing. Same here. So the plague is coming down. People are dying. David goes to intercede for the people. He wants to make a sacrifice. Sacrifice is usually what's seen in the scripture of the thing that pleases God. You'll get to see why in just a moment. So David goes to this spot where the plague was. Kind of like, stop it, right on that spot. Little hill called Moriah. And he buys this area, this threshing floor. To sacrifice oxen, and now he owns that area. By the way, the plague is stopped. That spot called Moriah was renamed Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. He gave that to King Solomon, and that became the spot where the temple was, where all the sacrifices were made to please God at that point forward. So he uses that situation to teach a powerful lesson that sin causes death, but there can be salvation through sacrifice. But the animals really didn't cut it because they had to be sacrificed year after year after year. So what in the world do we need to sacrifice for us to finally be done with our sin? And you know the story as well as I do. God sent his only begotten son to die for our sins as the final and ultimate sacrifice so that all sins forever could be forgiven. There's a commentary on this chapter that says something similar to what I shared with you in condensed words. God, though he cannot tempt any man, James 1.13, is frequently described in scripture as doing what he merely permits to be done, And so, in this case, he permitted Satan to tempt David. Satan was the active mover, while God only withdrew his supporting grace. The great tempter prevailed against the king. So, the nation was plagued. David put a stop to it. And the Temple Mount was secured, the place where sacrifice was made from the days of Solomon on. Chapters 21 through 24 end 2 Samuel few things we learn about it. Our behavior affects other people. Sin will eventually catch up with us. If I ended there, I'd only be given half the story. Because I told you the bad news is always followed by the good news. In fact, the first four books of the New Testament, the stories about Jesus who died for our sins are called the Gospel or the Gospels. Gospel is just a funny Greek way of saying good news. I don't even know why we call them the Gospels. It should just be called good news. In fact, some Bible people made a good news Bible. It's just the Gospel Bible. That's really what it is. It's, the Gospel means good news. It's, it's not so much the Bible about that we sin. It's more like we can be saved from our sin. It's not so much that we're lost. It's more like we can be found. The Bible is not so much about God judges sin as much as God forgives sin. It's not that there's a hell. No, it's there's a heaven. We can be saved from hell. And we get focused in on these judgment stories, and sometimes we lose our way. Because it's not about that. It's about the redemption. It's about the saving grace of God. How he takes all these things and turns it around. And good comes out of it. Shot the gun up in the air. The bullet fell down and killed somebody. How could good come out of that? Well, what you don't know, this isn't to. Me. the person that died was 12 years old. They go to the funeral because it was a Christian kid. And all the friends from the high school are there and all their parents. One of the biggest funerals that community has ever seen. And the pastor gets up and says, I've known this child since she was a baby. I did the dedication. She was the godliest person I knew. And he tells two or three stories about her. Some of the teenagers start crying. Now I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak. And one of the teenagers gets up and says, when we were in seventh grade, she told me about Jesus. And I gave my heart to Jesus. and I." I'm so thankful for her. She's in heaven now, but I know I'll get to see her again. And then another teenager comes up, and another teenager comes up. Now, all these kids from her high school have heard her story about how Jesus has transformed her life and the life of her friends. And I could tell you right now that that girl's up in heaven saying, thank you, Jesus, for letting me die this way. So I could bring the gospel to dozens and dozens of people, and several of them got saved at the funeral. That's how God works, but the newspaper stops it. Bullet kills stray bullet kills kid. That's where the newspaper stops. Somebody recently told me, I think it was Michael, the worship leader, Bethar Shalom. It's the Satan news network. Any news network, because all it does is give bad news. It never gives the good news. Here's the good news: Jesus died for our sins good news isn't that he died. That's bad news. The good news is he died for us and rose from the dead so that we don't have to suffer for the consequences of our sins. Here's what the Bible says. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, none of us like death. None of us like judgment. None of us like the consequences of sin. But I'm thankful that there are times where you let us see the good that comes from them. And I pray for all of us here this morning and those listening in online, even my new friends, Lord, that you would help us to see the world as you see it. Not so that we might be miserable, but so we might be overjoyed. So that we would turn from our sins and give our lives to you so that you might make good come out of them. We wouldn't be like Pharaoh. We wouldn't be like Judas. We'd be like a redeemed King David through whom many were blessed because he purchased that field. Lord, please help us to see the world through your eyes and help us to live through your spirit to be a blessing to many people that our behavior would affect others, but always and only for the good. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.